0: Okay, well, let's uh, begin to work our way back to our chairs, and uh, uh, you can open your scriptures this morning to 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, and I'll be reading this morning from verses 22 in the first chapter on through verse 3 of the second chapter. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted, that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be in Your Word this day. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts as we have this opportunity to be in Your Word. That we would understand the things that You've said. We would recognize the implications of what You've said in terms of our our beliefs, in terms of our attitudes, in terms of our actions. And then, Lord, enable us through the indwelling Holy Spirit to step out in our obedience to the things that you're putting your finger on this day that need changed or reinforced in our lives. Help us to have alertness of mind during this time together this morning. We put our time in your hands, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of comments, not many, about the context of our verses today. Now, the preceding verses from verse 13 through verse 21 were reminding us in 1 Peter about the need to grow up as believers, the fact that salvation is intended by God to be the beginning, not the ending. It's where we start. We move from death to life, but then God wants us to be growing in our Christian lives, to grow up as disciples which is why the great commission in Matthew 28 is stated in that fashion it obviously implies evangelism when we're told to go into the whole world but it goes on it says make disciples teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you so this idea of observing what he's commanded us and growing as a disciple is central to the great commission in verses 13 to 17 He underscored three sort of core responses that are tied to growing as a believer. You remember that was the preparing of our minds for action, the being holy in all of our conduct, conducting ourselves with fear, the fear of the Lord in the midst of this world. Last week, in verses 18 to 21, we were looking at the underlying motivation for that very growth. And he said the underlying motivation for growing, for deciding I'm going to build on the salvation with the discipleship you want to see in my life, is the realization of what it costs to save us. That we all were in a place where we needed saved. We were all in a place where we needed ransomed and redeemed. We were all hopeless and helpless, as Ephesians chapter 2 put it. All of us by nature objects of wrath. And we'd have been without God and without hope in this world if it wasn't for God doing something. And in fact, he did something. And he sent his only son to be the payment for our sin. The cost of our salvation, the deliverance from our hopeless situation, required nothing less than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh to dwell among us. Only the shed blood of Christ solved humanity's futile ways. And remember that was we were looking at that issue. Every everything that man comes up with to try to have a relationship with God, to solve their sin problem, to have hope for the future are all futile. They don't result in what they want them to result in. Only God's answer gives any hope. In this answer of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh to dwell among us, coming into this world, living, dying, raising it from the dead, ascending into heaven, later to come yet again, this plan was an eternal plan, and we ended with this last time. All of this was part of God's eternal plan before the foundation of the world. He had established a solution to the sin that hadn't even happened yet. And and this solution involved nothing less than his son. And he he concluded all of that by saying, all of this was done for the sake of you, is the phrase translated in the English here from the Greek. All done for you. It was for us. He didn't do it for God. He did it for us. And uh, the question is, how have you responded to what was done for you? you? Have you accepted what was done for you? Have you responded to it properly? This Jesus Christ, this part of God's eternal plan to solve our impossible circumstance uh, is the only way, it's the only answer as John 14, 6 put it uh, Jesus said to him, I'm the way the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me well that's pretty decisive isn't it, pretty absolute uh, in its character Acts four twelve 12 is the apostles are defending themselves before the Sanhedrin, notice Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men uh, by which we may be saved or must be saved. You say, well, Christianity, that's kind of exclusivism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because God made it exclusive. It's not like I came up with it, (laughs) but God gave us an exclusive message. Well, that brings us to today. That's some sort of record for getting over some review of verses this day. But uh, starting in verse 22, and the reason I read through to verse 3 in the second chapter, is that we're shifting gears in this passage. And in point of fact, this would have been a great place for a chapter division. You remember in the original manuscripts, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions. It's not that those are bad things. They were added for convenience for us later on so that we could more readily say, well, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 instead of saying, oh, well, turn somewhere in the first part of the letter to the Philippian church. You know, they were, it was added for us and there's a good thing but the problem as I've often said to you is that chapter divisions can sometimes be at unfortunate places because in the English when we have a chapter division in something it sort of ends one thought and something else is starting later. Uh, if you put the chapter division in the wrong place your mind doesn't always think oh we're still talking about this you think we're talking about something new or we're, you know, something new comes up and you think it's back what you were talking about before. In verse 22, we begin to see a shift in focus. And from verses 22 of the first chapter through the third verse of the second chapter, there is one overarching message that has been given to us, and it is the centrality, the central role that the Word of God plays, the central role that it plays in our salvation, our new birth, and the central role that it plays in our growth as disciples. I often tell people, if you were looking for a portion of the Word of God to turn to that would remove all doubt about what our life's to be built on, this is a good portion to turn to. Because clearly, the Word of God is the central knitting comment throughout any of the verses that I read to you. So let's get into it and see what that's all about. But verse 22 kind of transitions us into it. And I want to look at that separately because verse 22 is related to an issue of body life, a command given now to how we deal with one another as redeemed believers, redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. And he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. God wants you and I as his redeemed children to have both affection for the brothers and sisters that are in the church, the family that we're a part of, but also to have a commitment to selflessness in the way we deal with the brothers and sisters who are part of our church family. God's very interested that we be expressing love within the church. And in fact, the passage, verse 22, talks about love and actually uses two different words for love in the Greek. The first part of the, of the passage, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, uh, translates a form of the Greek word phaleo, which refers to the warm affection characterized by a family unit or close friendships, close comrades. It's it's a warm, affectionate kind of terminology. He says, for a sincere brotherly love. And then he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The second love that we encounter here is a Greek word, agape, or agapeo which refers not to affection so much as it refers to selflessness, self-giving orientation. The love chapter of scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, and I've said this to you before, throughout that love chapter, the word that's translated by the English word love is the Greek word agapeo. Agape. It's referring to selflessness, not affection. Often people will read 1 Corinthians 13. I get a kick out of this in, in, in weddings or other places. And they're talking to them about 1 Corinthians 13, oh, the love chapter. And they're, they're translating and thinking about it in their minds in terms of the deep affection that you would, should feel as a husband to a wife. And it's not that you shouldn't feel uh, deep affection in, a, in, in your marriage. But 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't have anything to do with that. 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with a ale. It has to do with a selfless orientation. In First John, we discovered the ultimate expression of that was Christ giving his life up for other people. First uh, Corinthians 13 is all about how to live selflessly, not how to live emotionally. Not that we shouldn't be emotional, but it's about selflessness. Well, the challenge here in this transition verse, as we move from the first chapter and now into the second body of focus in the book, is the challenge to have both affection and, And selflessness. And he says this command to express love in this form, both the affection and the selflessness, is rooted in the fact that if we are the children of God, and this command's only for the children of God, by the way, if we are the children of God, we've already been purified by our obedience to the truth. You can't carry out the command if you've not already been purified. So what does he mean by that? What does it mean you're already uh, purified by your obedience to the truth? Well, the obedience they're talking about here is what Scripture's description of the obeying the gospel. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, it begins by talking about the problem of people who refuse to obey the gospel and those who obey it. And obeying the gospel means God has presented to us the truth about ourselves, the truth about our dilemma, and the truth about what Christ did. And so obeying the gospel means, okay, I'm repenting of where I was and in my rebellion against you, and I'm I'm turning to Christ and placing my faith in him. I'm going to obey what you're calling for me to do, which is to repent and believe. So he says, if you've repented and believed, if you've obeyed the gospel, then God did a number of things in us when we've done that. One of the things he's done is he's purified us, meaning we were cleansed and forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, justified in the very sight of God. When God views us now, he sees the perfect life of Jesus, not the mess we've made out of our lives. Praise God, that's good news. <laughs> he sees that. First Peter has shown us in the first chapter that we were also made new creations. We were born anew as a result. Not only had we been justified, but we were made new people. He also told us that as a result of that obedience to the gospel, that we were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And therefore we have a new new power and strength that was not there prior to having been born anew. What's he trying to say by this? Salvation has made us different than we once were. And as a result of that, we can be commanded to do some things we couldn't have done before the difference was made. Do you follow it? The commands that he has here about loving the brothers and sisters, about growing as we'll come to see in the scriptures, are all built upon the premise that we've been made different already. We don't obey these things in order to be different, we were already we don't obey these things that he's going to talk about not only here but in upcoming verses in order to be saved or in order to stay saved we do it because we are saved and it's not just an intellectual thing because God has actually changed us he's made us new people salvation has actually made us very different from once from who we once were and what we once were although we need to build on this difference, and we need to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our discipleship. In light of this, I always think of, a, of a, a classic quote from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this. He says, We are not what we ought to be. Much like Philippians 4, Paul says, Hey, I'm not already there. I'm pressing ahead. He says, we're not what we ought to be. We're not what we want to be. We're not what we shall be. But we are something very different from what we used to be. Isn't that wonderful? But we are something very different from what we used to be. We're not where we want to all be. We, we're not, we haven't grown the way we'd like, you know, whatever. But, but I know there was a before and after. <laughs> there was a me before I encountered the gospel and responded to it. And there's a me after I've encountered the gospel. And I'm different from who I used to be. That's not who I was. Uh, Great quote by Spurgeon, isn't it? And it gets to the heart of what's being described here. So, how does all of this change that he says is there? Because he's speaking to changed people. How does all of this relate to the body-life command? Well, here's how. He says, listen, once you've been saved, God stirs within you as one of his redeemed children, adopted into his family, he stirs within you affection, phileo, phileo, for the other brothers and sisters in the family. He doesn't do that for the unbeliever. doesn't mean somebody who doesn't know Christ as Savior hates everybody, although at times that is probably an apt description of where all of our lives were at a certain point. But But no, he's saying, listen... God begins to work in you in a special way as a product of having been made a new creation. And one of the ways he works within you is he stirs up affection for brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, a sincere brotherly love. I mean, one that's without hypocrisy is the meaning in the Greek here. God stirs within us something that's not just hypocritical, like a put-on. You know, I'm supposed to look like I care about people, so when I'm around them, I smile and hug them or something. God does something sincere and real in us and stirs up within us a care, a brotherly love. In fact, by the way, that particular form of phileo translated here is the Greek word philadelphios, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly city of brotherly love. That's the form of phileo he's talking about of warmth and family affection. God says, I want you to, to do something with that. I want you to express it. God has stirred it in us. Our task is to either fan it into flame or in disobedience, throw water on it. And you know, you and I can do either. As a redeemed child of God, God stirs up that flame of warmth and affection And I can do something to plant it into flame even more by my orientation. And then as I step out in obedience to do the things God says to do out of that affection, the Holy Spirit enables me and it gets to be even more flame, more love, more affection. Or I can do things to throw cold water on it. Now, I'm sure none of you have done those things that can throw cold water on the affection that God has stirred toward brothers and sisters. Well, actually, the fact is, I know all of us have. So the, the truth of the matter is God is giving us a challenge. He says, listen, I've, I've done this miracle to change you. And I've done something else. I've stirred in you some feelings and attitudes and affection toward brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's up to you to do something with it. So I want you expressing it. Don't be afraid to have affection. People say, well, I was hurt a lot by other Christians. Well, join the club. Who isn't hurt in a fallen world? I mean, that's that's the reality of it. But God says, hey, even if you've been hurt, let's keep on stepping out. Let's continue to fan into flame. Then he says, also, because you've been now saved, you've already been purified by your obedience to the truth, by your response to the gospel, I want you to take and exercise not a love that I've, stirred up in you, but a love I've actually poured into you. Because I've poured into you something that's not natural or innate to the human condition. Phileo is, forms of phileo love, because we're, we have that ability, whether we're saved or not saved, to have family warmth and care and so forth. He says, but I've done even more than that. I've poured into you agape. Romans 5.5 5 says, Because we've been justified by faith, God has poured agape into our hearts. He says, listen, I'm wanting you to act on the affection that I'm stirring within you, but it naturally also was there for you. But it's not enough. I want you to start using an agape love which was not innate to your condition. This was only innate to me as God. And I've poured it into you out of your salvation. I've poured this agape love in you. And I want you to begin expressing that. And as I've said, agape love, agapeo in the Greek, refers to self-giving, selflessness. You can have family affection and warmth towards someone and be downright selfish in the way you deal with them. Isn't that true? And God says, now listen, in the body, I want you to have that affection... But I want you to be selfless and self-giving as well. Uh, I want you to express it. The affection that I'm stirring in you is meant to move us to using the agape I've poured into you. And I want the body to be the recipient of both warmth and selflessness from you. In fact, I want you doing it, as he put it, earnestly, from the heart. The word earnest is a translation of a Greek word which means to be intense about it. Uh, So are you this day intense, fervent in your affection and selflessness within the family that God has placed you in as a church? Well, as we think about words like that, by the way, one of the things that should come to us right away is to say, help. You know, I mean, if that's what you're really after, Lord, and you want these things, you've done these things in me, and you want this to be fervently, uh, earnestly demonstrated, I need help. And God says, I know you do. You can't do this unless you're living selflessly and empowered by my Holy Spirit who now indwells you. And if you do that, then these things will be realized. If you don't do that, no matter what kind of determination you have to try to make it happen, you're going to have a skinned nose all the time because you're going to fall flat on your face. Uh, the Christian life and growth is a collaborative effort. God saves us. Done what had to do to save us. We repent and believe. Collaboration. Uh, but he's done what had to be done to save us. Then he pour, he makes us justified. He, you know, he stirs up the phileo. He pours the agape into us. He enables us through the Holy Spirit. Indwelling Holy Spirit. He's called for us to choose certain things as redeemed children of God. And he says, I will empower you as you step out in obedience to it. And if you don't step out in obedience to it, Instead of the Holy Spirit's enablement, what you're likely and going to feel is the Holy Spirit's conviction. Because if you're not doing what I've commanded you to do as my redeemed child, you're displeasing me. You're being disobedient as a child. And as Hebrews 12 puts it, I'm your Heavenly Father and I take that role seriously. I adopted you into my family. You better believe I'm going to be disciplining you in a way that you need to be disciplined to be trained up and built up as a disciple. Well, bridge to getting into the issue of the centrality of the word of God. So let's go on with that main issue. He says, since, verse 23, Since you've been born again, not of the perishable seed, but an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. He says, all of these things, the love issue, all of this stuff is tied to the fact that you were born again. You've been changed. So let's take that further, he says. Let's talk about your being born again a bit more. You were born again, made new creations, because there was an, as he puts it here, an imperishable seed planted by the word of God in you an imperishable seed planted by the word of God in you. Remember how he starts that verse 23? Since? (laughs) I mean, because this is true? We have been, after responding to the gospel, truly changed. And as a result, we can now live differently. Not just because we've been changed, but also because we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit who can enable us and help us in our obedience. If we've repented of our rebellion against God, our own self-confidence for the future, and instead turned to Christ, obeyed the gospel in that regard, then God says, you've been born again. You've been changed at the very core of who you are. The deepest level of you has been transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about it. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. That's the terminology used there. In 1 Peter, back earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, he says, We are, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born again. Uh, He says, let's go back to that topic. I've done a miracle in you. I've changed you. At the deepest level of who you are, I've transformed you. And he says, I want to talk to you a little bit about this birth. I want you to understand something about it. First of all, I want you to understand that this new birth was the result of an imperishable seed planted in you. That's the imagery God is using here says you are a new creation you've you've been born anew because of an imperishable seed planted in you the word seed in the esv translates the greek word spora and the word spora, well, you can see sort of the English word spores kind of is rooted in that Greek word. But the word doesn't refer like to the, the spores coming off of fungi so, or molds. It's, instead, it, it means literally a sown or planted seed. So it's a, it's a description of a seed, but a description of seed that's actually not in the packet anymore. It's actually been sown, maybe planted in the ground. Uh, it's a synonym, by the way, for the Greek word sperma. We encounter that word in 1, Corinthians, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, sperma, abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. That seed makes him born anew. Born anew and different. So they're synonyms together. Now what's the point? God has planted a spora sperma. He has planted, in response to our obedience to the gospel, a new man within us. We've become new, new creations. We are a seed, an imperishable seed. He planted it when we obeyed the gospel. He planted it when we repented and believed. Oh, you mean it's not just an intellectual thing where you just decide, okay, I'm going to align with this body of ideas instead of aligning with that body of ideas? Well, it is that, but it's more than that. Because when you do that, not just in your mind, but in your will and in your heart, then God does something miraculous. So he not only saves you, but he changes you at the deepest level. is isn't something you did, something he did. And he says, what I've done within you, I want you to think about this rebirth, this new birth. I want you to think about it like a seed planted and sprouting in the soil. Now that's God's image, not mine. I didn't spend the week trying to think, how can I get a good image of what it means to be born again? And say, well, oh, a seed, let's use that. No, no, God, this is God's image. He says, I want you to understand the new birth with this in mind. It's like a seed being planted and then actually sprouting. That's what the new birth is. So therefore, it's, uh, it's truly biblically accurate to talk about a new believer, a true believer, as a sprouted seed. Although, while I'd be biblically accurate, it probably be best not to me to go to someone and say, Hey, sprout. You know, but, but it's biblically accurate to say that. Because God says, you weren't sprouted before. Now, you're sprouted. Now you're sprouted. The Christian life is that miraculous. That miraculous. Do you think about yourself, as a believer now, as a sprouted seed? God says, I want you to think about yourself that way. Because I planted the seed, and something sprouted in you that wouldn't have happened... If the seed had not been planted in you to sprout, you could have spent your whole lifetime trying to have a plant come up, and it wouldn't have come up, which is exactly why everyone is lost apart from Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of good things you try to do. It doesn't matter how many new leaves you try to turn over. You cannot create a seed. You'll never be different. But God can plant a seed in you. Do you see it? He says, this is how I want you to think about the new birth, a miraculous thing on God's part. He plants in you a seed. And this seed, he says, is an imperishable seed. That's how the ESV translates the Greek word. The Greek word means something that cannot decay. Something. Sometimes it's translated by the idea of immortal. Uh, but it beginning. Keeping with the seed image, the idea of it can't decay, makes sense. You know, sometimes when you're planting gardens, it won't be too long before that happens, even despite the snow. You know, you can plant certain seeds, and some of the seeds, you go back, nothing came up there. You look at it, hey, this, this just sort of rotted in the field. It didn't, it didn't actually sprout, didn't actually turn into something. He says, the seed I plant in you turns into something. It will Spray. It will not decay in you. And he also says another thing by using that imagery. And it's a principle that you should understand because God's using the image of a seed. Here's the principle. Once a seed has sprouted, it can't unsprout. Let me repeat that. Because that is earth-shattering truth, really. Not that I came up with it, but it's true. Once a seed is sprouted, it can't unsprout. You't do like a seed sprouts, maybe you've got it in a petri dish or. Something. You can't go in and push it all back inside. You know when it's too early, I don't want it sprouted. It doesn't work that way, does it? You can't, you can't put it back in. It's sprouted. God has planted the spora sperma in the life of the believer in response to their repentance and faith. That spora sperma sprouts and it cannot unsprout. It cannot decay. Therefore, that new birth, like that seed, becomes a permanent change in the person. Permanent change. Now, you and I can certainly do things to keep a true sprouted seed from being as fruitful as it could be. That's why the scripture uses that sort of imagery, talking about the gospel and different people responding to it, and some become very fruitful and some not fruitful at all. I mean, we can do things that interfere with the fruit production. We can't do anything that makes the sprouted seed unsprout. Think about that, brothers and sisters. He also tells us another thing. He says, you've been born not of perishable seed, but imperishable. And he says, you've been born, and this is the structure of the grammar here, you've been born through the living and abiding word of God. It was God's word that planted an imperishable seed of the new birth in our lives and i've been saying this new section is all about the central role that the scripture plays no one is born anew apart from it no one grows apart from it the word is that important that's central to everything and people say well i want to hear the word of god well don't listen inside read this is this is what is transforming no one is saved he even says it here no one is saved unless the word was preached to you remember he says that later on in these verses you know, uh, the word of God good that was preached to you no one is saved without the word of God being preached that doesn't mean they had to be in a place where there was somebody standing up in the front of a room and doing an evangelistic sermon although that can happen for people and that could be a way people were saved no it's, it's the proclaimed word is the preached word getting into the words no one is saved because they sit down and think how can i be saved they, it's because they hear what god has said about it either because there was a biblical tract maybe they were just in the word maybe some friend shared it with them maybe they were in a meeting but no one is born without that i mean nobody naturally gets born <laughs> you know that you have to hear the word is the word central Yeah, because nothing starts without it. And then nothing goes on without it either. And he says, I want to tell you something about this word. It's living and abiding. The word of God, we can see it in written form, but brothers and sisters, it's more than the written form. He says, this word is living and abiding. Same image, by the way, he uses in Hebrews 4.12, where he says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the very division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. (laughs) It isn't just human ideas that somebody says, oh, that's profound. No, no. It's living and active like a sword and it pierces you to as deep as you go. It does it. Not because there's a persuasive preacher, but because the Word does that. It penetrates in. It is living and active. It works in us. In 1 in in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he goes on and he says, Which is at work in you as a believer. He <laughs> thought, oh, this is different stuff. This isn't just ideas. It's God's word. Living, active, works in us. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, give you an Old Testament picture of this. God is speaking to Jeremiah and he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? Like like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And of course, it's rhetorical. The answer is, uh, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's what it is. When you say these things, yeah, that's what it is. Have you ever been pierced by the sword of God's Word? Have you ever been worked on with fire by the Word of God as you were reading it? Have you ever been, feel like you got hit with a sledge? I'm not talking about a preacher maybe being overly zealous in the way they spoke. I just mean the Word itself. It's like a hammer. Boom. It just comes. It breaks all of the wall that you've built around who you really are. Have you had the Word of God be like that? Have you seen the Word of God work within? And the answer is, for the believer, the answer is yeah. It's been real uncomfortable at times, Lord. People say, well, I want to turn to the Word of God to be comforted. Well, good luck. Sometimes it does that. But more often than not, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, trains us in righteousness. Yeah, we have comfort in the Word, yes, but Sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable to be in it. You say, oh, man, I was in there and felt like a a sword stabbing me. Or, man, I felt like a hammer hit me. I was reading this, and I was hoping I, after I read it, I thought, I wish I hadn't read that. You know, because, man, now I can't forget it. It's, boom, it's there. and God, That's the way the Word of God is. Let's conclude the look at it. He says, the grass withers, the flower fails. But the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's enduring word has planted in us an imperishable seed. And that enduring word ensures this. That that seed, that new birth, is also enduring. An enduring word means an enduring sprouted seed. God's word remains forever. The quote here, by the way, comes out of Isaiah chapter 40, where God is contrasting the words that people come up with with his word. And he says, basically, people come up with words, but ultimately, even if they entertain you for a while, they're lifeless. I mean, no one finds life in them. Ultimately, they fade, they die, just like the grass, just like the flowers. They don't do a work in you. They may be motivational at times or whatever, but they ultimately are lifeless. They're not a fire. They're not a hammer. They're not a sword. Only God's word is. Only God's word. He says this is what it does. Only God's word doesn't fail you. And as a result, God's word stands forever. I was thinking of Isaiah 55, where it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now, he's not using the word seed here in exactly the same case, but in a way he is, because he's trying to remind us about that imagery, isn't he? And he says, So shall my word be... That goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I sent it to save you. And if you repent and believe, it will accomplish that purpose. I sent it to help you grow. Here's the bottom line: eternal certainty rests upon an eternal word. Anything else is just wishful thinking for people. People say, "Well, I feel this way. I feel that way." Well, tomorrow you're going to feel differently, maybe. Uh, God's word never changes. It achieves what He's after. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It works in us. It's like a fire. like a a hammer, it does what God sent it to do, which isn't always comfortable for us, but is always in our best interest. Now, the bridge to our next study, Lord willing, is in the second chapter. He opens up by teaching us that the Word of God not only was so crucial in saving us and keeping us saved, but it becomes the key to our growth as well because he makes this statement You have to long for the pure milk, meaning literally here in the structure of the passage, the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure milk of the word because by it you grow in respect to the salvation that you found. You don't grow apart from it. It's not the only factor because we have to be obedient to it, of course, but the word of God, which was central to saving us, also becomes central to growing us as his redeemed children. That's why I say this is all integrated together in a single theme, woven through it. Well, the seed is sprouted. The issue now becomes how much fruit or lack of it is there in our life and will there be in our life as sprouted seed together. Father, thank you for a day that we can be together. Take your word as we sing it, as we read it, as we study it. Plant it in us. Do the sword, the fire, this hammer, whatever it takes, Lord, to accomplish that purpose you have for in us. And we'll thank you as you do that. Be with us in this day now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Birthdays and anniversaries. So before, you, before we move and get to the next stage, and get things going on the meal, let's have the birthdays and anniversaries.